Welcome to Bartender Journey, podcast number 104. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. This week on the show, I have an interview with author Christine Saizmano, and her book is called America Walks Into a Bar, A Spirited History of Taverns, Saloons, Speakeasies, and Grog Shops. It's a really fun book, and uh, it tells the history of America through spirits and, and taverns and what a huge influence they had on uh our country growing up. It's really interesting. And I was actually talking to a high school um, history teacher about it. And uh, I told him, I think this seems to be the real story. This is not what you guys are teaching in school, though. And he, uh, he pretty much agreed with that. So as you'll hear in the interview, taverns had such a huge influence on our country. And uh, the, it was a meeting place before the Revolutionary War where the Sons of Liberty and other groups would get together and uh, plot and plan and, and discuss and, uh, and figure out what to do next. You know, like Dale DeGroff said in uh, show number 99, he, he talked about the importance of bars uh, in modern day. I just want to play a little clip of that for you because uh, it was so great what he said. So in fact, those neighborhood bars are critical to the society social fabric of that neighborhood. And what they provide is a living room, uh, an extended family, and their, their, their main business is not uh, the uh, dispensing of craft or luxury uh, beverage goods. Their main purpose is, is to provide that service to the neighborhood. If you haven't heard that whole interview, go back and um, listen to it. If you go to bartenderjourney.net, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a uh, Google search bar. So if you just put in Dale, you'll find you'll find that interview. That was show num- number 99. So getting back to this book, America Walks Into a Bar, uh, it starts, you know, before the Revolutionary War, and it goes straight through, uh, you know, all, all of it, through Prohibition and uh, through then to the 60s and 70s and 80s, 90s, and then to modern day and the uh, sort of new cocktail culture that's evolved. It was a lot of fun talking with Christine. I can't wait to play the interview for you. Before I get to it, uh, just remember, go to bartenderjourney.net, and uh, there you'll see a link where you can buy this book, America Walks Into a Bar. And uh, you'll see a link for Flavar, which uh, is a cool place where you can buy some interesting spirits, uh, unusual, hard-to-find stuff, and you can save $10 if you go to my website and uh, click through that link. And you can also buy these fla- uh, these tasting packs, which are a lot of fun, uh, five samples of, of uh, usually whiskey, but other spirits as well, uh, for from all over the world, and it's a really fun way to try some unusual spirits that you never would have heard of, probably, otherwise. All right, here's that interview with Christine Saizmano. Hi, Christine. Thanks so much for joining me today on the show. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed your book very much. Oh. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, you know, reading about the history of uh, the country through taverns and bars, and it's funny how linked they are, really, the history and and the history of spirits and drinking. I know. It's like all of America was just sort of rum-soaked for the first few hundred years of its history. Commerce kind of centered around it, and shipbuilding and all kinds of uh, secondary businesses it really relied on it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, and it's not what they teach you in sixth grade history, is it? No. <laughs> yeah, I was just talking to somebody about that today and showing him your book. A high school history teacher, believe it or not. Well, this seems to be the real story, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, we probably wouldn't have as many high school dropouts if they taught this version. Yes. Well, stay in school, kids, and don't drink until you're old enough. <laughs> well, uh, boy, I made so many notes about interesting things from this book. Uh, William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, his quote was, Utopia could not be dry. Taverns were going to be a crucial part for the colony's development. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it just indicates such a different attitude because you kind of associate this uh, 
these movements with being pretty dry. I mean, we think of Puritans, for example, as people who don't drink very much, but it mm. turns out they probably drank more than we do. <laughs> well, you even alluded to the fact that the pilgrims ended up in Massachusetts rather than New York because the captain of the Mayflower was worried he was going to run out of beer for the return trip. Is that, is, am, I, am, I, am I quoting that correctly? <laughs> yeah, that's certainly one of the, um, the theories for why they wound up exactly where they are. It's a pretty credible theory as well, I believe. Um, but beer would have been so important to avoid like that, right? Given that there wouldn't have been the fresh water that you could rely on in all of the Americas, um, we had it, but nobody knew that it was any good, right? Because in Europe, it was so polluted at the time, people just didn't trust the water. Yeah, yeah. So on on the ships, and then as well when they when they got here, they uh, they would drink more beer than water, right? First order of business: get the brewing going. Yeah, yeah. And in taverns, before there were even government buildings, a lot of legal proceedings would take place in taverns, right? In in some ways, they were the government buildings at first in a lot of towns. It was, you know, just a matter of necessity. Well, what's the first building we've got to get up? Well, we have to get a tavern running, <laughs> so we'll, we'll do everything out of there for a while. All of our legal ceremonies, all of our business, everything along those lines. So many juries or, or uh, trials would have happened in taverns at the time. Yeah, it was uh, sort of the de facto courtroom, post office, library, news center, town hall, community center, and sometimes even church, and sometimes even jail, you said in your book. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> everything. And the church stuff is really fascinating, yeah. you know, to think, oh, let's all adjourn to the bar because it's just too cold in here. Yeah, <laughs> the churches were too cold. Exactly, so the it was the warmer, warmest huh? place in um, town almost always, just because there were always people in there. Literally and figuratively, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but then there was sometimes conflicts of interest there with the tavern owners, you know, sort of almost running the town in a way they they that that kind of uh, that was a conflict of interest sometimes huh absolutely and i think that um you see a lot of that when it comes to trials about who owes money for what and things along those lines it's you really had to depend on your tavern owner being an upstanding kind of uh, town member. <laughs> and was that the case always? <laughs> I think it was the case quite a bit of the time. Uh, you know, people people really um, wouldn't have supported mm. a terribly corrupt owner in many, many towns. So uh, it was a, a very uh, important role. And um, it had to be a trustworthy person for the large part. Now, I mean, things go wrong, but of course <laughs> no. things go wrong with our politicians too. You know, it's not like yeah, <laughs> once in a while, not very often. Well, uh, yeah, even going back to uh, Britain, the, the pub was one of the first places where people would uh, be able to speak their minds and uh, enjoy a little freedom of speech, yeah? Exactly. And I think that's why it's so important to America is that it's this sort of distinct and unique space. And I think that there were um, definitely some of the things that were brought over from England. And you see uh, social movements happening in Germany through pubs and taverns. It's the same kind of deal all over. But in America, it was so pronounced just because they really were the first places that were put up in um, most of the colonial towns. And, you know, in Europe, you see older buildings that had some of the infrastructure. Things didn't happen so dramatically and quickly, starting kind of from scratch. So it's really quite obvious in America in a way that it isn't always in other countries. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, this this wasn't in your book, but it's just something I'm trying to find out more about. Uh, I've read from several sources that the first distillery in America was on Staten Island in 1640. And it's just, I don't know if you know anything about it, but it's something I've been trying to find out more about. 
I didn't know that at all. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. Do you know who would have run that? According to Gary Regan's book, which is called The Book of Bourbon and Other Fine American Whiskies, it was founded by William Keft, the director of the New Netherland Colony. Well, I've got a new thing to look for then. I've read it in four or five different uh, books, and uh, yeah, it's just something. But it's always like one paragraph or one sentence, and uh, it's hard to find any any more uh, elaboration than that. Yeah, because that's fascinating. I grew up in Manhattan and and then Staten Island, so uh, that's kind of why I'm interested in it. Oh, it's a little unclear what they were making there exactly. It could have been rum. Rum was sort of America's first spirit, right? Yes. Uh, um, and and that relied on the import of um, molasses or sugar from from uh, from the islands, right down. South. South. Right. I wonder if they were doing that in 1640. Yeah, I mean, Gary. I think it was Gary Regan who said uh, he, he seems to think it was more. Uh, it was more whiskey. You know, they would they would have used the grains that were uh, native to to the space. But I, I've read, and then another book says they were making gin, which that's probably totally not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. It seems a little early for the yeah. rum trade, so you'd think they might be using local grains. Yeah, but there was a, <laughs> there was this triangle of trade, right, which included slaves in Africa, and uh, you wrote about that in your book, yeah? Yes. Um, from sort of from uh, North America, they'd export the whiskey, and then they'd to Africa, if I'm remembering correctly, and then and then the next stop would be uh, to pick up more molasses and sugar in, in the islands, and then back up to uh, to North America. Yeah, it's fascinating that that could have driven such a well horrible trade, obviously, yeah. um, but that it could it was such an important trade that molasses rum triangle. Yeah, and then um, mola- there was a molasses act, 1733 molasses act, brought uh, shipbuilding to a standstill. And uh, that kind of shows how much the alcohol industry had uh, such impact on the economy as a whole. It seems like. Exactly, because the first rumblings of the revolution all have to do with these trade tariffs. Yeah, uh-huh. And th- and there was all all those rumblings were pretty much in, in bars and taverns, right? Completely. <laughs> Where else would you do it? Yeah, I don't know. And. Uh, yeah, and and it seems sort of like a funny thing when we first say that, that that's where the original um, kind of uh, roots of the revolution came from. But if you think about it a little more carefully, I mean, people didn't have big homes that they invited their friends to mm-hmm. in Boston or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So it actually makes perfect sense. And then on top of it, you know, you get a, loose, a little loose, you start complaining about, you know, the taxes, and before you know it, you're up in arms. Yeah. And there, and that was a little before Twitter, so they couldn't do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I think that in a way, the taverns were the original internet. Yeah. You know, there were these sort of centers where people went and they brought news and then they discussed the news and then they, you know, disseminated the news to everybody else. So um, it's sort of like a, a proto-telegraph. <laughs> And then, and then you mentioned in the book that the tavern owners uh, themselves would uh, would transfer information from from one tavern to another. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It really important. I mean, that's another sort of indication of how important the tavern owner was. It's um, this this whole sort of idea that if you want to know what's going on, go to the bar owner because he's been sitting there the whole day and he's you know everybody's come in and told them their stories so he can kind of summarize everything that's going on in town for you. Oh yeah, I I, I do that still. I was just in a bar the other day and I was like, I asked the bartender, hey, what's with that that building across the street that's all shuttered up all of a sudden? You know. Well, what happened exactly. there? <laughs> and she you know, she knew the and, answer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, there's it's a, a huge sort of information center. I remember um, when we had the big blackout. The first thing mm. everybody that I knew, we all went to our local 
neighborhood tavern. Yep. And, you know, they didn't know anything more. They they just said, well, the whole eastern seaboard's out. Yeah. But we all kind of went there like by a homing device. Yep. And we had to drink all the beer before it got warm. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then sit on the patio and watch the stars. Yeah. Were you, whereabouts were you? You're in uh, Canada, yeah? Toronto, yeah. Oh, okay. So, oh, the, oh, I forgot. It reached that far north, huh? It did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, here in New York, that was, uh, yep, they all never forget. <laughs> yeah, quite the night. Yeah. And the bars were full. Oh, they were packed. And you know what was weird? We had, you know, we had a Hurricane Sandy recently, and it was, and, and it was the opposite. I mean, the city was literally evacuated, and it was so creepy. There was no lights on. There's no people. You know, I'm, and, and I was thinking back to the, to the blackout, and there was no lights on, but there was tons of people everywhere, you know? But with the, with the hurricane, they actually evacuated the city, and there was just nobody around. It was creepy. Right. I had never seen Manhattan like that before. Sorry, my my dog is joining us. Excuse me a second. (laughs) Shh, take it easy. Okay. Uh, So, uh, yeah, there were actually mandates that certain towns uh, have taverns. And and, uh, Massachusetts, 1656, there was a mandate that uh, a a town could even be fined if there was no tavern. That's right. It's not providing sort of public accommodation. <laughs> How's your town going to do business if you don't have the most important sort of centerpiece? <laughs> That's cool. And, and But then it uh, evolved to where the, the candidates for political office would buy drinks for the voters in taverns, which was uh, – well – Hey, that's how business is done, I guess, right? Well, I guess that's the beginning of the end for the tavern in a way, hmm. because um, that's when the enemies of the tavern start to get really upset about the way that things are running. Hmm. And you see people starting to say, well, this is really fixed. I can't win an election right. because I'm not buying as many drinks as the other guy. Hmm. Um, and therefore, I can't legislate that you shouldn't be able to campaign in bars. Campaign in bars, um, you know, and the polls were in bars. Everything was in the bars. Right, right. I liked how you talked about um, health or, or toasting when you would uh, hmm. toast to someone's health. And uh, that was actually outlawed for a while, right? Because <laughs> people were... Drinking to people's health a little too much. Yeah, and I think that if you look at the modern practice of buying rounds, you can kind of see how that gets kind of out of control. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a guy just going into their the bar by himself and he's, you know, having a drink and uh, minding his own business, <laughs> then that's one thing. But if you've got a group of five or six people and you're buying rounds, you know, that gets out of control really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think that it was this sort of communal um uh, cheersing that people were getting kind of worried about in terms of how to control the bars. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> Oop, you okay? Sorry, yeah, drop my microphone. It's back. <laughs> uh, but then you say somewhere around 1720, regulation, regulations restricting dancing, singing, toasting, or healths, and 9 p.m. closings failed to be reinstated. So that must have been uh, that must have been good for business if you're a tavern owner. That's right. And it's sort of also, you see the beginning of the um, Byzantine sort of laws that are ever-changing and, you know, trying to regulate really tiny little things and the moral architecture of the place, how the bar is all set up, um, and how they they sort of go back and forth year after year after year. In jurisdictions, um, they're all different. So it's almost impossible to keep track of exactly what public drinking was like in America for all of these years because there's just so many little miniature laws being changed all the time. Yeah, (laughs) I know, yeah. yeah. Uh, There's a lot of strange ones out there too. 
Yeah, still. Yep, absolutely. Well, I like I like the uh, in Philadelphia. You mentioned a bar called the Men Full of Trouble Tavern. I said, That's the coolest name. I, you know what? And when I open my bar, it's going to be called the Men Full of Trouble Tavern. <laughs> Art, you're not the first person to say that to me. I think it's a gr- it was perfect name for a bar. I like that one. And uh, out of Confederacy of Dunces, I always wanted to call a bar Night of Joy. <laughs> 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 and the uh, the men full of tavern. The best part of it was it had a secret tunnel. Yeah, isn't that? I mean, I think there were quite a few secret tunnels, um, and that most of them were probably connected to smuggling. Yeah, yeah, to to avoid the tariffs that uh, Britain was imposing, right? Exactly. Yeah, the stamp stamp act and all that figures into that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, fast forwarding a little bit, you, you know, in old movies, you, you know, especially cowboy movies, a lot of times you'll see, uh, the, uh, the, the barkeep, he puts the bottle right on the bar and the, and the guest is helping himself. And I always thought that was the strangest thing, but you, you say that's true. That actually happened. Yeah. Probably not in every single saloon, but absolutely. Uh, very, those, those saloons were really interesting because in the old Western movies, we kind of get the sense that they were always fixed, um, buildings, but of course they were often tents or really anything makeshift mm. bars. You know, you just have to sort of have booze will travel. <laughs> But I always wondered how did how did this barkeep uh, the bartender know how much to charge you? How much did the person drink? <laughs> Unless he's watching the entire Well, you time. know, one of the things that's really interesting is that uh, during various periods, the price of booze was so incredibly cheap because um, mm. in the middle of the 19th century, for example, it would be sometimes cheaper to turn it into alcohol than to transport the grain, um, especially in places right. like Pennsylvania. So I think the raw cost of some of these goods wouldn't have been so high in certain places. Um, so there might have been a little more kind of laissez-faire attitude just on the basis of that. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah, that is an interesting thing that um, that reason that alcohol became such an important uh, part of the economy was far- farmers would produce something and then, you know, whatever grain it was, but, you know, you could transport the same amount of grain in alcohol form um, much more readily and get a better price for it and it didn't go bad. Exactly. And uh, depending on the taxes at the time, it would depend. You, you might want to distill it yourself and you might want to sort of be hiding about how much you are distilling. Um, but yeah, transporting is some, one of the huge keys to the whole thing. And um, I think that you could probably argue that the way that America was settled has um, the fact that there were such large distances between places makes a big difference to the fact that liquor became so common and popular here um, instead of say beer or wine which is hard to transport much bulkier and harder to keep fresh and harder to deal with the extreme temperatures liquor is so handy and (laughs) stable yeah yeah god bless it (laughs) but also uh that's how barrel aging came into effect was that a lot of things were transported in barrels including liquor and that's where it gets its color and its its taste and flavor and so that's uh i I always found that fascinating right because they say that um, that some of this stuff might have been quite accidental to discover. Hey, it gets so much better after it's been left here for a while. Yeah, it floated down the Mississippi River in a barrel for whatever two weeks or whatever in the sun, and came out totally. It was totally different when it got down in New Orleans. Exactly, <laughs> and so <Yeah>. much better. <laughs> this was real <laughs> rock cool. gut when I first tasted it. <laughs> now it's kind of smooth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I first yeah. made it, it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I like uh, you had a little section about uh, rituals and bar etiquette and uh, talking about uh, there was one there was a time when not buying the man next to you a drink uh, in a bar was 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 a was a terrible offense. I think it still should be. <laughs> yeah, so <there laughs> it's so convivial um, when strangers yeah. kind of do that for each other, and and uh, but also probably indicative of a, a bit of a price difference than what we've got going right now. Mm, it's a little harder to right. do with an eighteen dollar cocktail. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> do you have those in Toronto too? Eighteen dollar. Yeah, cocktails? we do. <laughs> Quite a few of them. <laughs> Alcohol is really expensive in Ontario because we're we have a lot uh, of taxes on it, so we uh, have even higher than eight. $18 sometimes. Yeah. What, what's the cocktail scene like up there? Uh, it's it, it, it took a little while to get off the ground because of the fact that the alcohol is so expensive. And it's also not yeah. always easy to get everything that you want. Um, you know, we had a long, mm. uh, we had a hard time getting yellow chartreuse, for example, something that you'd really expect yeah. to be able to get in um in a New York liquor store at all times. And, and there are probably about 50 examples of things like yellow chartreuse that are, you have to wait for the, the government to bring mm. them in for one month only and go and hoard it and stockpile it. So oh some challenges. That, that sounds terrible. And that, and that's, that's something that's pretty uh, pricey even around that's here. Right. So that, that's right. I can't imagine what it must cost there. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, and, oh, and continuing on about rituals and bar etiquette, uh, you know, in, in certain states, in, in New York, I think it's illegal now, but we, we used to have the buybacks, you know, you buy, buy two or three and then the bartender would buy you one back or the house would, you know, this one's on the house. But uh, I like how you said explicitly trying to get free food or, or drink is a big no-no. And that's, that definitely is still the case. Yeah. Angling <laughs> for a free drink is always a bad move. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yes, it really is. Bad form. Or or asking, uh, you know, saying my drink's not strong enough. you got to pour some more in there. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> That's the, yeah, you know you're, uh, you've got a bad customer when they tell you that. I can't taste the alcohol uh, in here. Get shivers. Did you put any in? <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> uh, then you, you talk about uh, hotel bars and, and uh, especially in Manhattan, that was that was a big thing. Uh, you mentioned the city hotel, which I hadn't heard of before. Do you know Do you know where that might have been in Manhattan? You know, I think I, I did know this, but I can't remember right <laughs> off was, the bat, off the top of my head right now. It was I'm probably sorry. downtown somewhere. I wouldn't assume. Yes, yeah, surely. Yeah. Well, uh, you talked about a bartender there with a strange first name that I can't pronounce, Mister Willard. <laughs> yes, Erasmus. Erasmus. And uh, yeah, yeah, he said he. He was it sounded like he was a real rock star bartender. I know, isn't that amazing? I think the story there is about um, people kind of checking in once or twice and then going away for a really long time and then coming back and he can remember, you know, what room they prefer and what the drink they prefer and what their name is. And um, I, I think that's sort of quite a remarkable story. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of it has to do with just really paying attention and really trying to do your job well. Um, but uh, maybe some people are more gifted with memories than others. I, I think that I mentioned in that part of the book that he always reminds me of Murray Stenson um, in uh, Seattle. He's um, a bartender. He's quite remarkable as well in terms of knowing everybody's name. I believe that the story goes that he has never forgotten anybody's name <laughs> um, that he's learned if they've sat at his <laughs> bar. And I would believe it. I've watched him work, and I, I he's quite amazing. It's a gift, but it's also a, it's, it's a muscle you have to exercise. You know, you have to use it. And uh, yeah, and you have to care, right? To 
to listen because a lot of the time when we introduce each other, we sort of aren't listening to who the person is. We're just, you know, sizing them up and yeah. instead. Yeah, the name can go out of your head in an instant. It's, it's yeah. terrible. Like, like like you've never heard it. <sighs> I know. I know. I know he told me his name. I know he did. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. i got to find somebody who's an expert on that and talk to them about it on the show because it's an important skill for bartenders. <laughs> it sure is. Well, I, the only trick that I have that kind of sometimes works is for me is uh, relating it to somebody I know, you know? So it's – Yes. That, yeah. That's the only thing that works. But uh, Most bartenders will tell you they've got great face recognition and they can remember what that guy drinks, which is, of course, the more important thing than knowing the name. Yeah, but, you know, it just makes, yeah. it makes you feel so special when, when somebody remembers your name like that. Indeed. Uh, and then, uh, so you said uh, Mr. Willard there, the bartender, He uh, even tourists would come and be honored to sit at his bar and, and have, have a drink personally made by, by him. Yes, yeah. It would be sort of a souvenir. Oh, I went and had a drink made by Willard. Yeah, yeah. and that's, uh, that's happening again, especially in New York. <laughs> it sure is, yeah. <laughs> so uh, then that leads us to uh, Professor Jerry Thomas. Who, uh, mm-hmm. who, uh, so Mr. Willard came before Jerry Thomas, I guess, on the timeline. But uh, Jerry Thomas became famous because he actually wrote this stuff down and wrote a book and, and recipes and even guidelines for being a great bartender. So tell me everything you know about Jerry, Jerry Thomas. <laughs> oh, um, I'm not a Jerry Thomas expert, actually. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, <laughs> I just, I, I mean, some people say he's the world's first flair tender mm-hmm. because of the way that he um, could throw that flaming drink. Yeah. Um, but of course, most of his recipes uh, are more useful for people kind of doing the precise uh, pre-prohibition cocktail kind of stuff that it, that is so popular. Well, I guess it's starting to wane in popularity now, um, but that has been so popular for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And the revival of the drinks from that book has been quite remarkable, especially I think the interesting thing that came out of that is sort of a little bit what I alluded to in Ontario, um, that we can't get so many of the ingredients. And then you've got all these people wondering, you know, how can I get that brand of bitters that no longer exists Mm -hmm. and people going back and trying to recreate them and bringing dead spirits back to life. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, the, the Blue Blazer, that's the drink you were thinking of. The, right, yeah. the Blue Blazer, yeah. exactly. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, he seemed like a fascinating guy. Um, yeah, such a showman. Yeah, exactly. And he, yeah, he's kind of considered one of the founders of our industry. Uh, exactly. Uh, and then uh, let's talk about ice. What what effect that had on on the bar business? Yeah, I think that um, that that's sort of the defining characteristic of the American bar mm-hmm. to to my mind is the fact that it has ice. And um, and I mean, of course, other people have had ice at different times, but the ice harvesting that took place in I think some to some degree in Ontario, uh, but mm. more so in Massachusetts um, and other New England states, uh, that was kind of an interesting. Like, because it was on mass and there was so much ice being brought into Manhattan, I used to know the exact amount of ice that was brought into the uh, Brooklyn Manhattan area every year, but I can't remember mm. exactly how much that is. But it's a huge amount, and then you've got people sort of getting used to it and looking for ways to to artificially manufacture it. Um, and uh, as soon as ice became sort of relatively reliable to have at all times, then you could build drinks around it. And when you see American bars in you know. Uh, Vienna or uh, Peru or places all around the world, 
the defining characteristic of those and the and um, the ones that they had in the uh, world's fairs is that these were drinks made with ice. And so that's what starts to sort of shape the American bar as a little bit unique and distinct from other places. Right, right, and and even in Europe at times, right? There were pl- there were places that would call themselves American American bars all over. Absolutely, it was a huge novelty to be able to have one. And, and like you say, one of the one of the big characteristics of that was it had to have ice. Yeah, exactly, ice and uh, less cafe seating, um, and all mm. of those sort of defining features of the American saloon that we start to see with the stand up bar and um, and that style of service. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I love the the history of the of the of the bar itself. You know, the the fact that it has to be a certain height, and then there's a there's a footrail there to, uh, and that's actually to make you more comfortable and stay longer if you're standing there, right? <laughs> exactly, and I think that as uh, convivial and friendly as the taverns were during colonial times, um, the bar is a wonderful way to socialize that, uh, I mean, I, I still find it now I'll go out with people and then I'll be, you know, I'll just immediately start walking towards mm-hmm. the bar yeah. as soon as we go into a place. Yeah. And then I see that they're headed to, to go scope out a table. And I yeah. think, no, we're not going to have to sit at a table all night. Are we? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> How are we going to meet new people that way? <laughs> exactly. Right. And, uh, it's sort of a whole different frame of mind. And if you go and you stand at the bar, you're kind of in public and you know, you're, you're there to meet random people who you never would have met in any other sort of um, realm of your life, probably. Exactly. And, and it's such an adventure to do it that way. And that is sort of another aspect of the American bar that I think is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And there's a different relationship. I think, I, I forget who said, I think it may have been Dale DeGroff who said, uh, there's a different relationship with the bartender and the, and the guest from a server and a guest, you know, a server is very subservient and, uh, you know, you're renting that table for a certain amount of time where the bartender can kind of, you know, bust your chops a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very different relationship. Yeah. That's really neat. I hadn't thought about it in terms of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we, uh, we, we better move on to prohibition and speakeasies. We're going to talk about that. I like, uh, I, I had never quote, I heard this quote before you, uh, Will Rogers said prohibition was better than no liquor at all. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> funny. Never heard that before. That's yeah, great. it gives you an idea of what it was really like. Yeah, well, what can you tell us about, about speakeasies? Well, I think that we love this era, right? Yeah. You know, it's so romantic and it's sort of a sort of law-breaking, but in a, a very sort of gentle and socially acceptable way. Yeah. And, of course, New York would have been spectacular at the time. Yeah. Um, and I've been, just for some other reason, I've been writing about Montreal today. So I've been thinking a lot about what, what Montreal was like during that mm. era and how wonderful the clubs were there. Because um, one of the things that Prohibition brought about was a lot of travel. You know, some of the first travel to, say, Cuba and, mm. you know, a, a lot of Canadian border towns and, of course, Tijuana and all of these wonderful places that people went to sort of have a 48-hour a alcoholiday. Um <laughs> But uh, I, I think that you would have been hard-pressed to find, you know, great speakeasies in some Midwestern towns. I think it, it yeah. would have been fairly dry outside of some of the big urban areas. So um, it's really a, 
a kind of an interesting time because a lot of people think that it, people drank more during prohibition than they do yeah. than they did before that but i don't think that's true mm. i think that some people might have had more to drink and some people had far far less and overall people think that um, the economists who have done the work and sort of tested to see how much people drank by cirrhosis of the liver cases so they, the idea is that it's probably um, about two-thirds the amount wow. of alcohol that was consumed of course it's really hard to tell because all of it was illegal yeah so nobody was keeping track yeah 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 and then, uh, yeah, it's so cool. I mean, the speakeasy is just—it's so much fun, you know. And 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 it's making a big comeback now. <laughs> People love them. Yes. People love them. Have, have you I, have you been to uh, PDT in, in Manhattan? I have, sure, yeah. sure. <laughs> um, yeah, there. Are, I and I think that that's really interesting. I mean, PDT has much better drinks than they would have had during yeah. the nineteen twenties, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> Well, yeah, there was lots of bad stuff, artificial uh, or, or uh, just stuff past grain alcohol passed off with coloring, passed off as whiskey, and all kinds of terrible things that people were drinking. Even, even stuff that made people really sick at times. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's a bar in Brooklyn called Jake Walk. Oh, I don't know it. And it's named after the um, the muscle problems that people had from drinking something called, I think it was called Jamaican Jake or Jamaican ginger. And, um, and of course, uh, it was, you know, poison as a lot of alcohol would have been then. Mm -hmm. And, and then there was the stuff that was coming through St. Pierre and Miquelon, which is, um, the two islands that are still owned by the French just off of Canada. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that would be where most of the good stuff would have been coming through. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it must have been so expensive. And then they'd probably cut it down, too, with water, or they, they might add things to it, or who knows what. <laughs> yeah, I think the average um, price hike would have been about six times yeah. the amount. Okay. And so that sort of puts it in perspective as to who could afford to drink and who couldn't. Mm-hmm. And so if you wanted something real. And I remember there was one line that I found from Texas Guinan, and she was telling a customer in the 20s for, at her speakeasy, at her very famous speakeasy, you know, don't order the champagne. You know it's not real, and I know it's not real. You know, tell your uh, tell your girlfriend to drink gin and be happy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so then, uh, then repeal comes, and that, and that kind of led into uh, women and bars were not really acceptable before, I guess, before prohibition, right? Right. Uh, I mean. There's, there were always women drinking in bars in some scenarios. Uh, you know, for example, uh, Emma Goldman drank in lots of bars I found in uh, in that era. And there were not only just exceptions, but it depended on whether you were middle class or upper class or upper middle class. So you would not have found you know, nice young ladies drinking in bars prior to Prohibition. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as Prohibition comes around, then um, a number of other things hap- happen. It's probably not just Prohibition. All of a sudden, there's sort of a suffragette movement, and women sort of take to going into speakeasies in a way that they never did when taverns were legal. And some men complained about it, you know, saying, mm-hmm. well, when we had the tavern and the saloon, I didn't have to wade through a sea of schoolgirls in order to get my drink, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> and then speakeasies um, changed all of that. And then in 1933, um, when people were debating the return of the tavern, uh, it was too late, and women were going to be involved in the in the uh, return of the tavern for sure. <laughs> 
Yeah, so now it's the opposite. I don't know. You know, the comedian Louis C.K., he uh, said something, he had a bit about uh, some guys walking into a bar, and one, one guy says to the other, dude, you said there were going to be chicks here. You suck. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, yeah, with ladies' nights yeah. and things like that. Yeah, it's hard to imagine bars not wanting to have women. Of course, um, you know, there were still plenty of bars that uh, didn't allow women for many, many years um, after that because it was sort of considered unseemly or um, problematic. You know, uh, the people were in Ontario, for example, but this is true in many, many states. Um, the big worry was that there was going to be a lot of prostitution in bars mm. if you let women in. Well, uh, McSorley's uh, in New York City was one of the last, I, I think the last in, in Manhattan to let women in. And I forget what year that I, was, but in the 1970s. I think, uh, 70, the 70s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah funny I to think, think that that they were as far as i know they were the last and i believe that they were still not terribly friendly even <laughs> after they were forced yeah. to let women in think that you know you probably weren't you were made to feel like you weren't welcome right 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 well then we uh then we get into the 1980s and 90s you mentioned um, fern bars which i had never heard of that before, that phrase before <laughs> <laughs> right but you- yeah i mean uh there, the fern bars. A lot of people are talking about how that's due for a revival, mm-hmm. um, you know. And and uh, fern bars were sort of very explicitly aimed at making women feel welcome, mm-hmm. um, just sort of a little bit softer in terms of the uh, um, the lighting and um, the atmosphere, and and trying to make the furniture just sort of all a little more friendly and a little less masculine. Mm. Yeah, and you and you say uh, TGI Fridays and and even the show Cheers uh, are are sort of fern bars, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm, I mean, Cheers um, is also kind of an old old school sort of neighborhood tavern yeah. in that way. That, but uh, and and most of the patrons at the bar are certainly men yeah, and right. not women. That's but true, yeah. It's not uh, a place that you'd be afraid to go into as a woman. Yeah, I don't know. You, you always like to think of, you know, Cheers has always been the ultimate the ultimate bar, you know, whether it's uh, 200 years ago or now, you know, that was always kind of the idyllic situation. <laughs> yeah, with that sort of great character holding court in the middle of the bar, making sure everything sort of works perfectly. Um there's a book, I'm sure you've read it, The Tender Bar by J.R. Moringer. No, um, no, I haven't. Oh, I think you'd love it. It's uh, about a bar um, on Long Island, and I can't think of the name of it. And he talks about the guy, you know, who owned the bar and how he just sort of stood there in the middle of the bar and he made sure everything was okay and he was the big draw. Mm. And when he leaves the bar, it starts to become, I think it starts to to go downhill. Interesting. Oh, I will definitely read that. Yeah, it's great. Cool. So then you... You mentioned um, something else I hadn't heard of. Angel Share was sort of the first cocktail bar in Manhattan. I I, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's uh, Sasha Petrasky told me that. I mean, obviously not the very first. Co- there were martini bars yeah. at the time, right? right. Yeah, and um, but he said that he went into Angel Share and he saw the potential of the type of service that they were doing there and the type of place. And um, have you been to Angel Share? No, I haven't. Um, and uh, it's sort of hidden, so it's one of the first speakeasy-style yeah. bars, yeah, yeah. and uh, this sort of more precise and understated service instead of the Tom Cruise throwing the bottles around cocktail, yeah. um, flare-tending, this this sort of uh, more careful measuring of things. And um, 
Sasha Petrosky told me that he believed that this was um, kind of a Japanese take on American bartending from back in the Jerry Thomas days, right. uh, the pre-prohibition, that the Japanese culture was sort of more rigid and that they learned this American bar style and um, they kind of held on to it for a very long period of time and with the beautiful glassware and the, yeah. the jiggers and the more careful pouring yeah. and that then they sort of reintroduced it to America through Angel Share. Cool. Um, and that Sasha Petrasky th- saw it, and I think he said something quite charming to me, like, I'm going to make a mint off of this, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's um, uh, the origins of his milk and honey bar on Eldridge Street. Yeah, and now, and now moved up to 23rd Street. It's, uh, it's, de- it's, it's a great place, amazing drinks, amazing bartenders. It's definitely not Cheers. <laughs> no, no, it's sort of the opposite. Yeah. All of these cocktail bars are, um, to me, the antithesis of, of those uh, neighborhood taverns that people go to talk to each other. I mean, some of them even have rules. Yeah. You cannot talk to the person next to you, yeah. um, you know, unless you happen to already be friends, yeah. Yeah, things along those lines, or at least if it's a woman. And I can understand that they're trying to keep people from, you know, misbehaving, but uh, it's it's not the same deal. Yeah, well, Jim Meehan says uh, at PDT, if, you, if you're looking to pick up girls, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> don't, exactly. Don't do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, I don't. Employees only. I think uh, you know has more of a cheers vibe in the, in a way. That's yeah. That's what a vibrant, lovely bar. Oh my god, it's my favorite bar in Manhattan. Is it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the the, the perfect night. I've said on the sh- on my show before. The perfect night is going to the White Horse Tavern across the street, which yes, has been there for yeah. 150 years or something, and then going to employees only. But you can't beat that. Yeah. It's uh. It's so crowded, though. The employees only. It's yeah. it's. Uh, I I like to get there right at like six o'clock so I, that I can get a seat at the bar. It's the only time you can. I know. I told I told this story one time of uh, my, the very first time I went there. I was meeting a friend and. He was running late. I got there early. I got there at like 5.30 and he's running late and he's not answering my texts or whatever. And, I, you know, I didn't see anybody go in or out of the place. It's supposed to open at 6 o'clock, right? Here it is 5.30. I didn't see anybody go in or out. And I'm like, eh, it's 10 to 6. Let me see if I can get in. There's going to be probably nobody in there yet. <laughs> it was bad. Right? There were no seats at the bar. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, good for them. They figured something out. I wish we had one like that here in Toronto. Mm. Well, I I like your quote. If you don't mind me, uh, it's not a spoiler, is it? If I tell the last line in the book, I think it says. I'm sure it is. (laughs) The the story of the bar is really the story of America itself. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I think it's true. I I um the whole reason that I started looking into bars was because um my husband was a baseball writer and we would go to American League town. Mm. And I, I just sort of noticed that there were so many places in America, unlike Canada, that all had a plaque saying, you know, this is where this great revolution started, or this is where this historical event happened. And I thought, oh, or or maybe the bar wasn't there anymore. And it would say, you know, this is where this happened. And there was a bar here called Manfall of Trouble Tavern, <laughs> or something along those lines. And I thought... It's like everything that ever happened in America happened in a bar. <laughs> and I started looking into it, and I found more and more and more. Yeah, and you found out it was actually true. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Uh, and your other book, I don't know too much about, but can you tell us a little bit about it? You know, I wrote um, a book about cocktails in 2005 called Mondo Cocktail. And um, uh, some people you know, actually prefer it because I have – a little more fun with it in some ways. but So Oxford University Press, they're not really big fans of inserting a lot of jokes in your book. (laughs) 
so I wasn't really able to have quite as much, you know, fun in that way. It's a more serious history. Okay. Uh, Mondo Cocktail is really just a silly little book about cocktails and drinking in bars and things along those lines and more of a humor book. Unfortunately, one thing that I don't like about it is that I would rewrite all of the recipes now because I know so much more about it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but it's lighter. It's more bedtime reading, I think. Cool. And uh, anything else you're working on that you want to share with us? Um, I can't really figure out. I've been doing little things with alcohol, but I haven't really. I've, I'm kind of interested in how alcohol is sold right now. And I think that there might be an interesting story about the way that um, it's changed the the marketing and the advertising of alcohol over the past hundred years, hmm. uh, especially in the past twenty, where people have moved away from advertising and have moved into kind of different ways of of getting their product out there. And I think that it might be a good story about the way that advertising itself is changing and marketing. That is interesting. The brand, the brand ambassadors and all that is, uh, and and the social media exactly. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, how that all used to drive magazines, um, you know, a, a lot of alcohol advertising really propped up a lot of magazines, and yeah. now it's, it's not really doing that so much anymore. Well, the, the, the mad men are, uh, are a dying breed. <laughs> they sure are. <laughs> uh, and it's ironic that that Mad Men uh, show kind of was one of the sparks for the new cocktail revolution, you know? <laughs> You're right, uh, just at the time when that's all going away. Yeah, yeah, that's really... Uh, very ironic. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Christine, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank Appreciate you. your time. And uh, I love the book. And uh, anything else you want to tell people, websites or uh, Twitter or anything like that? Um, it's ChristineSismondo.com and at Sismondo. Awesome. Love to hear from you. Great. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was a lot of fun. Once you start delving into the history of uh, all this stuff, the... Uh, taverns bars and, and spirits uh there's a whole world out there it's really interesting and uh so i hope you enjoyed it too and you can uh maybe find a little tidbit of information you can use there while you're behind the bar to keep the conversation going or use it at a cocktail party and check out christine's book once again the title is america walks into a bar a spirited history of taverns saloons speakeasies and grog shops by Christine Saismano, and if you go to uh, my website, bartenderjourney.net, there'll be a link up there uh, right next to the show notes for this show. And by buying the book through that link on my website, you'll be helping to support the Bartender Journey podcast a little bit. So I appreciate that. When I get around to it, I'm going to add a whole um, bookshelf page to the website uh, with some of the books I've talked about or recommend. You look for that soon, as soon as I get around to it. So once again, the website is bartenderjourney.net. My name is Brian Vincent Weber, and you can find me on Twitter at Barkeep Tips. You can search Facebook for Bartender Journey. I'll find the Facebook page there. And you can email me. Feel free to email for any reason. It's vince.bartender at gmail.com. Hey, we'll talk to you next time. Cheers. <laughs>